This is Creativity in Captivity. I'm Pat Hazel, and my guest today is a musical comedian that has been seen on Last Comic Standing, NBC's Bring the Funny, and her own dry bar comedy special. She hosts a weekly podcast called Kristen Knows Blank, celebrating the guilty pleasures, weird hobbies, and quirky fascinations of her comic guests. Joining me now is the clever, crafty, and comically committed musician, Kristen Key. That spark of electricity, a skipping stone that sets you free, or captive to a mystery, the curse of creativity. La, 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 la. la, la. Hey, thanks for having me on, Pat. I love it. Just a few weeks ago, I saw you live at the Comedy Magic Club's anniversary, and your energy is contagious. The audience is swept up in it, and I think it's a combination of your personality and the fact that you know how to use music to get everybody jazzed up. You know how difficult it is when you only have five minutes or so to set a tone in a room. I think it's important to whatever your vibe is as a comic to try to see if you can suck them into it as soon as possible. And I, I think music is cheating. <laughs> I cheat every day I go to work because <laughs> I'm like, oh, I play a happy little tune. And then everybody's like, well, this is this is a happy little moment. Let me give you credit for something because doing co comedy and music combined and knowing how to sort of integrate it and make it kind of ride in the sidecar side by side is a unique talent. And there are some great examples. I don't know who influenced you. Absolutely. I grew up on all of them. I mean, my, my dad is a, he's a evangelical Christian minister. That's a diehard comedy fan. And so like <laughs> his guilty pleasure was like everything from Mel Brooks movies to the Smothers brothers to Steve Martin and so Victor Borga was one that it, I think my grandpa had an old VHS tape of his shows. And so it, like, uh, I loved how Steve Martin could layer silliness and bizarre, you know, wordplay, but also the command that a musical instrument takes when you have it. So I, I enjoyed watching that. But when I started comedy, I started in a comedy club in Texas and the rules were comedians just do stand up. Right. Hacks use other things. <laughs> right. Hacks juggle. Do you want to be a juggling clown? And I was like, right. I don't want to be a juggling. It's hard enough being a woman in comedy right. in Texas. I'm not going to play the guitar. When I finally did, I, I saw a great comedian named J.R. Brow. He played a guitar in, in Austin, and he did a wonderful job, and it was funny every time. And I asked him, I was like, do you worry that people are calling you a hack and stuff? And he goes, they probably are, but the thing is, if they could play, they would. I'm like, oh, yeah, they're saying it because... Yeah, they're a little jealous. I started out as a magician and a juggling clown, as, as yeah. it were. Well, I had a hat, a top hat, that I would roll around and up my arm and down, and I'd throw it on the mic stand, and it would stick. And it was a great opening because the crowd would cheer for, you know, like it's so like sinking a three-pointer. I would pick some piece of music, like a Coke theme song or something. You couldn't not enjoy it. It sucks you in. I don't know that I faced dramatically that, but I did see it when I went to... LA and went to the improv and places, if you carried a bag up, if you had props of any kind, it was like training wheels to them. Yeah. And all the <laughs> comics would just say, what are we doing with this guy on the show? But when you own it, when you become funny, when you find your voice, or in the case of props, I had them for a long time because I was integrating volunteers and I realized that it really didn't matter what trick I was doing. It was more how I interacted with the volunteer, how I behaved with them. That was really what I was good at. And I weaned myself from some of it. But then after doing Just Straight Stand Up, I remember writing this one man show where I went, wait a minute, I like holding stuff. 
I like show and tell. Why would I be embarrassed if I could hold up a can of Manwich and get to the punchline faster? It's every year, like there's one or two shows I'll do, and it's usually at Comedy Magic Club during a short set that I'll be like, I'm not taking the guitar this time. I'm just going to go, I'm going to do a short set. I don't need the guitar in a short set or whatever. And I'll do it, and then I'll look at the clip of it, or and I know how I felt on stage. I'm like, you know what, I don't have to have it, but... I love having the guitar. I really enjoy the process of like setting a mood, using it as a punchline. I like adding an extra layer. So yeah, I can. I started with straight stand-up for the first six years, like no instruments. And now that I have one, I don't know, I, I think it's more enjoyable for me. I saw Phyllis Diller do stand-up once without the wig. <laughs> she left the <laughs> wig in the dressing room and it was like this, you know, legendary wig that was full of 50 years of sweat and we all put it on and got our pictures taken because she was on stage but it was not the same it was just who she was yeah and part of it i think you know she had to make other concessions she was actually quite attractive in her youth and because she got into comedy an attractive woman as a comedian wasn't that acceptable she i think created the clown look a little bit the hair right, was like right. surprised to be out at all but once she defined herself, once she became the Phyllis Diller we knew, to see her out there with thinned hair and sweatpants, she was funny, but it's a different kind of thing. One of the things that impresses me when somebody plays music and does comedy, it's a little like the shark in Jaws, where it doesn't always come out till a little bit later. Like you, you'll be strumming a little, tell a joke. You could tell there's talent and you're withholding it a little bit until you're ready to crack into a song, a couplet, or you'll do a couple of things and you'll get a laugh. But it's sort of like, I can tell she can really play this thing. Right. I think that's important with musical comedy too, because young musical comics will come up and be like, hey, I thought about putting the guitar in my act. What do you think? I'm like, do you play the guitar? They're like, well, I'm learning. I'm like, I don't think it looks good to be learning two things at the same time on stage. Just learning comedy is hard enough. So learn to be funny on stage, maybe learn to play the guitar off stage, and then put them together when you're good at both. But learning two skills is real frustrating to watch as an audience when you got someone that can't tell jokes or strum a guitar well. <laughs> you make it harder than it has to be instead of making it easier. Right, epic fail in stereo. Right. Well, let me ask you about opening lines. Over the years, you know how that becomes a, a thing? With early television, you get excited, you got your opening line, you get your first television shot, and you spend it. And now you're invited back the next time, and you know you can't do the same material, and that becomes a thing. How do you open? How do you close? It's so important. The opening line, it's more for you than for them. Yes. Because it's what gives you the, I'm ready to go into my first joke now. Like, I've established dominance on the stage. Because I, I work on cruise ships, and so I've got two shows with people. And so I give them my best opening line, and then the second show, I'm like, <laughs> ah, now we have to be genuine in a way. You know, it has to be, you know, and so I always try to, I lean into, both of them always lean into, I'm happy, I'm excited to be here for a different yeah. reason, because it convinces me that it's true. <laughs> my standard is, my name, my name is Kristen, I love cats, I crochet, and I'm married to a woman who's ready to party. Okay. And I, I can change those through three things, you know, depending on where I am, but it's like, I want them to know just a few things about me, and that I'm ready to be here, and then, and then we usually are pretty excited to start the show. Well, you know what's interesting about that? It's kind of like a short story setup. Who's the main character? Right. You're telling us, oh, okay, we're going to find out more, but at least we know something. Early on, I tried to get the laugh before I talked. Oh, okay. 
And so one of the things I did on an early Tonight Show was I had a, a security tag that you would see on a shirt, and it would be tucked in. And I would come out, and I would pull the shirt out and go, they'd start to laugh, and i go, brand new shirt for the show, what do you think? So they're laughing at the visual thing, and I don't, I'm oblivious to it at that moment. In my uh, one-man show, I start with a short movie where I build the laugh into what they're watching so I can see if they're, how they're feeling before I hit the stage. You, I mean, yeah, if I walk out and I don't go straight to the microphone and I'm plugging in the guitar and I just stand next to the microphone and shake my head and look around the room for a second and smile at them and see if they're ready to go or if they're just staring at me, you can get a pretty good barometer with that silence. Yeah. And I can tell, you know, they can see where I'm at. I'm excited. And then I look at them and they're not. I'm like, oh, okay. Well, it's yeah. going to be like that then. Okay. We have to meet right. each other somewhere in the middle. I'm like a puppy on stage. Like, oh, right. we're dog sitting right now. And I feel like dogs always have the attitude of, I don't know what's going on, but I'm just happy to be invited. So I try to have that kind of <laughs> my tail's wagging energy when I go on stage. Yeah, yeah. You know what? That reads, and I, I wasn't sure how to describe it, and I think you nailed it. Because the likability meter is like way high with you. People are engaged with you because you have a great smile and a great attitude. And you do bring a, a hostmanship. You seem to be concerned about everybody in the audience. Yeah, and it's a thought I have before I take the stage. It's like everybody has that moment backstage where something goes through your head and it can't just be your set list because I've already written that. So in the moment right before you take the stage, one of the thoughts I think is, I wanna bring joy to the room and I wanna receive joy from the room because I've done stand up selfishly and I've done it more with a mindfulness of, we are all people in this together at the same time. And it definitely feels better when I think about like, however big the audience is, however tired they are, however much they have, I'll be grateful for that and not they better fucking bring it tonight. That always feels shitty when I'm like, oh, I got new jokes, they better fucking land. It's like, no, no, no. I'm gonna bring the best jokes that I have, I'm gonna tell them the best way I know how, and however that audience meets me, I'm gonna try to adjust my energy to this, this moment so that we can all leave feeling like we were here together and it wasn't just like me trying to suck something out of them. Performers that amaze me, when you see a big singer connect to individuals in a giant auditorium where people feel like they're singing just to them, like they just have a way of communicating and engaging and making eye contact. They're working it, and they're working it in a way that's genuinely trying to get everybody up the mountain together. I heard Celine Dion did that. I heard, and I heard Taylor, Taylor Swift is, is just incredible at that. But the Celine Dion story I heard was I, I heard some friends in Vegas that went to go see her multiple times and said every single show she does, she does at 110% as if it's the last show she'll ever do, ever. It is a gift to both parties. I mean, we go out of it with adrenaline. I'm a storyteller comic, so I feel like I'm not as suited for clubs as I once was because I now work performing arts centers. Theater is so forgiving for comedy because you're not fighting with drinks being mixed and you're not the hustle and bustle and the turn, like we got to turn it for two shows and all of the stuff. You know, clubs are, are a little bit like Venice Beach workout in front of everybody. <laughs> right, it's a wild, wild west in some of these clubs. Even some of the great clubs, it's still the wild, wild west, you know. Have you noticed with social media and you're hitting it out of the park on Instagram, are you noticing a difference in that the audience is there to see you versus there to see comedy? Yes. Thank God for, I think, the pandemic 
and social media this perfect storm. I was wondering when comedy would have this resurgence because I know it's an art form that's always been. It never goes away. But there was like a kind of a lull for a while. While nobody was like putting stand up on TV, the opportunities seemed like they were smaller and smaller. And then, you know, we're all locked inside. TikTok, Instagram, everybody's doing these short videos and you see stand-up starting to put up little clips and the stand-ups start getting more followers. And so, you know, I jumped on that. I mean, there's the, the fear of, I don't want everybody to see my act. And then I'm watching other people do it and I go, wait a minute. Of course I want people to see my act. <laughs> right. See my act. As the nervous comic goes, well, what if I run out of material? It's like, well, probably you should write more, you know? And so... I start doing this and, and I noticed that my Facebook followers used to be, I looked at the analytics when I first had, I had like 5,000 followers that I've been growing for what, 10, 15 years. And they were predominantly men. I'm like, well, this isn't what I want. No offense to men, but it explained why when I'd put up a lesbian forward video, I'd get hateful comments from my own followers. I'm like, I haven't spent time cultivating a fan base. So I spent time like putting out videos that were more on brand for me. And now like, the last time I went to Tulsa, instead of looking out at the, the Looney Bin Comedy Club, like foyer, you know, the, the lobby there, and you just see in a cross section of Tulsa, instead I saw a lot of short haired lesbians. And I was like, ah, this show's gonna be different. You know, this isn't, I'm not gonna have to spend the first five minutes letting them know they can trust me and then doing my act. I can just start my act. Yeah. It's really fun for me to get to like write more material that I want to write instead of being kind of concerned with, well, how is this going to play in middle America? Well, I think the liberation of being able to speak your truth and allow your humor to sort of fold out from that, as opposed to the idea of be what people want you to be. That's always how most people enter the business, whether they're auditioning for an acting role, they're like, they're looking for me to be a lumberjack. I loved how casually you said Looney bin in Tulsa. It's part of our vernacular, but it, it just sounds like the insane people that you're addressing uh, the Looney bin in oh. Tulsa. <laughs> right, right. That's the, that's the comedy club that, name that they chose, and it's stuck, and they never changed their logo. <laughs> Do you observe s certain rituals on the road that make it more comfortable for you? Is there things that you seek out? usually try to take a nap on a show day. I don't know. I like, I drink tea. I'm a big tea drinker. I'm sober now. So my routine changed when I got sober. Cause it used to just be like recover, drink yeah. lots of water, <laughs> try not to be hungover, try not to look hungover. It seems like in the last few years, I've been connecting with more like family, friends and fans in cities around showtime. So I stay pretty busy. When I tour with this show, the Wonder Bread years, it's a nostalgic show and it's all flashback when i get to some cities and i'm there for a week they want to take me to the place that they make you know wonder bread or that we're going to go to the peeps factory and see how they make peeps and i have gone to the crayola factory i mean i like those quirky one-of-a-kind things yeah. in towns and also i always beg them to tell me a restaurant that's unique to their area i know how to eat a subway sandwich i don't need that anymore but if they have barbecue that's to die for yeah. or something, point me to the thing that I can only get here. For sure, for sure, yeah, yeah, yeah. Like I, I like the local food, I like the local, not chain restaurants, but something that's unique to that area. I walk a lot, I do it for, for health at home. I walk like two miles a day. So on the road, I'll find an area that's like, you know, the, the classic area of town. Like uh, I was in San Francisco on a cruise ship and we overnighted there. So I just had a day off, two days off in San Francisco. 
And so one day I walked the whole Golden Gate Bridge. I could walk. Let's see how far it really is. It was awesome. So cool. And then uh, the next day I just ate in Chinatown for like eight hours. It was <laughs> amazing. And I could have stayed longer and eaten more. I mean, I could die eating in Chinatown in San Francisco. It's so good. Yeah, I think that's one of the sad things of the commerce and how chain restaurants came to be and how everybody started making things alike. McDonald's franchised and went everywhere. And that's kind of a different, I give them a different rule of thumb, which is feeding families quickly. But the notion of when you walk into some towns, you literally see nothing but chain restaurants. And mm. their biggest restaurant is a pizza hut. When the college students say, hey, let's go to the pizza hut. You think, oh my gosh. It's like, no, that's the fancy place. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I grew up in a town like that. Am Amarillo, Texas is like, it's one chain restaurant after another there. And they, they finally got a Cheddar's. And everybody was like, oh my God, <laughs> we finally have a Cheddar's. I was like, ah, good for you. But they've also got some of these like little little hole in the wall local places that have amazing barbecue, Laotian food that like you just don't expect it to be there, but you wouldn't know it was there unless you knew it was there. I lived in the New Orleans area. I lived in Mandeville, Louisiana for five years. And when Katrina hit, and it caused everybody to head for the hills in all kinds of different ways and evacuate. There was a big change in the national environment for Cajun food and for New Orleans fare in, because some of these families ended up in Salt Lake and they ended up in Chicago and, yeah. and they opened the restaurant. And I remember when I would get there, people would say, oh, we'll, we're going to take you to our favorite place. It's a New Orleans place. And I was like, I've just been eating this for five years. Right. I enjoy it. But it was certainly unique to those areas. You gave a blessing to the pandemic, but sometimes there are outcomes from bad times that turn into blessings across the board. Sure. I think that's definitely, like you mentioned, the Laotian food. If you're in Minneapolis, there is some really great ethnic food up there. Yeah, yeah. A good way to frame it sometimes is when you're in a town like Las Vegas or you're somewhere, you say to them, where do the locals eat? That's the inside track is... Oh, the locals know you can get a, a decent burger. Not a lot of meals that you never forget happen. They don't happen on the strip for me. But there are two. I will give two great Vegas recommendations. There's one place that I found. This was back when I was drinking and I had a hangover. And it's I was looking for soup. I thought that would cure my hangover. And so I, lo <laughs> I just I yelped soup. And there's this place called Shang's Artisan Noodles. And it's these hand-pulled Japanese noodles and noodle dishes. And it's just like braised beef rib soup with hand-pulled Japanese noodles. I go there every time. I got Brad Garrett going there. And this other place is called Lotus of Siam. It is the best Thai food. I've. It's They have a Michelin star. It's in a place that looks, it looks like a massage place that gives happy endings, but it's not. It's this Michelin star restaurant. It's so good. That's actually a pretty good tip. Sometimes people listen and they want to know something they can do. Like I'll get thank yous for a movie recommendation that somebody mentions. This is a conversation around a water cooler for creative people. And yeah. I learn something every time. It doesn't matter whether it's a referral or a piece of music. I'm quick to take the advice of somebody when they say it's my favorite. Not it's good, but I endorse this. Right. That's where I found some of the like the places that I go to now that are staples. I found because someone else goes, oh, have you ever tried like secret pizza at the Cosmopolitan? Yeah. Like, have you ever tried secret pizza? I'm like, no. And I'm right across the street from there, like, uh, you know, twice a year, for, like 14 days. You're like walk across the street, 
go to Secret Pizza. And I was like, oh, holy shit. Now it's yep. not a secret anymore. I'm going to tell everybody. Yeah. And they know that. That place is littered with secret places. But it's fun. And the thing is, that's a really interesting marketing ploy. The underground yeah. bar. Shh, don't the tell anybody. It's like, oh, I'm going to tell everybody. No, no. Uh -oh. Don't tell anybody. <laughs> tell everybody. That's what they're right, telling right. you. <laughs> that's right. That's right. Yeah. I should start doing that on my shows. Like, shh, don't tell anybody. But I'm coming to Northern Washington. <laughs> <laughs> well, you are traveling. I saw your schedule includes Washington, Las Vegas, Phoenix, Traverse City, Tacoma, and these cruise ships. So do you enjoy the cruises or do you feel like you're on a boat you can't get off after a couple of shows? It depends on what cruise ship it is and it depends on how many cruises I've done within that time frame. If I haven't been on a cruise for a month or so and I'm like, oh, it's nice, it's relaxing, it's fun. We get to meet a lot of people, go interesting places. I really enjoy Alaska. If I've done too many cruises in a row, it does get a little Groundhog's Day. So that's like, I think the only the drawback. What I do like about it is it's steady income, which as a 23 year comedian, hasn't been that long that I've gotten to, you know, make a good living off out of standup. If cruise ship gives me a nice, nice room, then yes, it's like a vacation where I get to do standup. Does your spouse join you on the cruises? Never, once. <laughs> and I've been begging her to go. When people are like, oh, does your wife come on the road with you? I was like, no, she has a job. She's a TV producer, so she works all the time too. She'll come see me when I'm in Vegas, but usually only if Brad Garrett's in town. I know who she's here to see, you know, she sees me enough. But cruises, I'm trying to get her on because I think she would enjoy the hiking, especially in Alaska. And uh, some cruise ships have pickleball, and she's a huge pickleball Oh, person, that's funny. So. so she's part of the cult. Yes, yes. Now, do you have a pickleball song? It seems to me like ripe. I've never written a pickleball song. I mean, people have has been asking me, like, like, would you write, you should write a pickleball bit. I'm like, here's the problem with doing a pickleball bit to a regular audience. Like, explaining the rules to pickleball, I mean, I guess that would be the bit. I do think that comic lyrics afford you some extra level of silliness and perspective. When you choose a subject to write about, you're obviously going into your head for some kind of rhyme scheme to, to get to the punchline, some yeah. true rhyme that sort of solves the riddle of the music at the same time as the comedy comes to a head. Right, with bits I work backwards from a punchline sometimes. With songs it's the same way. With songs it's like you want the funny word or the funny punchline and you just kind of build backwards from there. If I learn a new chord progression or if I'm playing a new chord progression, like what feel does that have? That feels like a love song. All right, what kind of love song would I write? And so I wrote this song about the brawny man falling in love. I had a hard time writing it because I knew it had something to do with cleaning, you know, and that, so that maybe that was jo the joke. And then I was like, well, what does girl look like? But then I had to walk away from it because it just wasn't coming to me. And then uh, when I replaced the girl with another man, then the oh. song just kind of wrote itself. Yeah. There you go. Yeah. yeah. And you already had the shirt in the closet too. So it all worked out. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> Have you used your musical talent to write like a bigger musical type of a thing? Or is it always used in concert with comedy? Always in concert with comedy. I got better at the guitar after I did stand-up. I started stand-up at 19. I put the guitar in at like 26, and I'd, I'd been doing stand-up full-time since I was 22. And so like, when people are like, did you ever play in a band? I'm like, I didn't have time. And I found out how much bands got paid. When you're a stand-up, you get to keep all the money, and the band gets to split the money, and it's basically the same money. So right. it's like, well, no wonder like Nirvana only had three members. <laughs> if you had a fourth, you'd have to give them a quarter of your money. Well, I used to always think that about 
dance troops and anytime there was a big group of people I go, oh look at how much fun they're having and you know they're making 10 cents a piece yeah just be a stand-up keep all the money right <laughs> well take me back to 19 years old and doing stand-up for the first time because that's a pretty big leap at 19 to take the stage was it a dare how did you make it to the threshold of the stage I was really depressed. So I, this, is a, this is a sad story that gets better, but I was really depressed. Like I had come out of the closet when I was about 16 and then uh, got kicked out of church for it and it was estranged from my family. And so I was trying to figure out what to do with my life and I was in college to be a paramedic and I kept seeing like people covered in blood and people like dying in a car wreck and stuff. And so I was like really depressed. Like, oh man, this is gonna be my life. My life sucks. God doesn't love me. Things are just shitty. I loved this band a local band called the Groobies and the lead singer, her name was Susan Gibson. She was a songwriter. She wrote the song Wide Open Spaces that she sold to the Dixie Chicks and it, it did tremendously well and she won Songwriter of the Year in uh, 98 maybe? A great, great song for, for them and in song. general. Yeah. Yeah. She's an amazing songwriter and a, a hell of a performer. She played the banjo, the guitar, and her music was real fun, Americana music. And so I would just go follow them and I'd watch her play. And that's something I would want to do is just, just be up there. But I didn't have musical aspirations. And so one time, you know, after the show, I approached her. I broke that fan band relationship and I went up and I was like, hey, Susan, you know, I love, love watching you play and stuff. Like, I've always wanted to do stand up, you know, how can I do that? And so I went to her like she was an oracle. And it turns out she was. She was like, that's so weird that you would mention that. My bass player's brother just opened a comedy club in Amarillo. You should ask him. I was like, okay. And so I talked to her bass player, Bobby, and Bobby said, oh, yeah, yeah, my cousin Kelly Moran opened up a comedy club in Amarillo, Texas, and, you know, you should call this number. And I was on stage two weeks later. I'd never been in a stand-up comedy club before. I'd seen it on TV, but I'd never seen live comedy before. I had a really good first open mic night. I called up. I was like, how many minutes did I get? He was like, oh, you get about five minutes. You know, if you're not doing good, we'll give you the light. I go, what if you're doing good? He goes, oh, you're cocky. I like that. <laughs> I practiced my set, and I went up, and I probably did six and a half, seven minutes. And was it about your family or your circumstances, or how did you cobble together the stories? I remember when I'm, there was a TV show back then called uh, Battle of the Child Geniuses was the week that I started stand-up. And so I was tried to write this joke about battle of the texas southern geniuses and the whole joke was how they and i did this impression of a kid auditioning for the show and how all they knew were bible verses i had a joke about being in church and how old the people in my church were it was kind of relevant i didn't talk about being gay because immediately one of the club owners had told me you know don't talk about being gay no one wants to see a dyke on stage i'm like okay yeah that's that's true and so I believed that a lot. And so I, I was in the closet until on stage until I was 35. I don't think the jokes were tremendously good, but I did perform the hell out of them. So I think personality was more important at that point than the, than the material. You understood the salesmanship. Yeah, yeah. And they let me MC. I was a like house MC there for, and, and they would stress to me the importance of what my job was as the MC, that like your material is your gift. You get to have that. But your job is to, to run the show, to make everybody look good, to hype up the audience. That's your job. And I understood that. Well, that is interesting because I know a lot of people who started out that way. And I ended up doing a lot of hosting and emceeing for corporate events. And you do take people on a journey. You're inviting them into the thing. You're giving credibility to the next act. You're keeping the flow going. It was something that I had to do as a studio audience warm-up comedian. It's a thankless job to be that. <laughs> Because you feel like you're the guy on a bus trying to get prisoners to unload to go to. The, sometimes they're brought into a studio audience not even knowing how long they're going to be there. They think it's going to be a half-hour show, 
and three hours later they they want to storm you you're just staving them off with candy and t-shirts and it's a pretty tough gig but you do learn a lot when you're doing it i think it's important it's it's you develop chops that way that's and i and the guys that would tell me that in the beginning and i would get mad at them for it you know because i was the 19 year old cocky arrogant kid in the closet but you know they would say like you know this is this is how you pay your dues this is how you learn stuff and they were right it really is it was a great way to learn you know they see you between each act you build a rapport with them you learn how to do crowd work crowd work is the thing on social media now you just see that that's what people are posting is crowd work they're searching for lightning to strike during their act so they can put it up there's a reason for this there's a reason for this it's because people don't want to burn through material you post your act, you're going to run out of it. And so a lot of people do Q&As during their show. I, I'm not going to get mad at it because you play the ball where it lies, like golf. This is where the ball is right now. On social media, people really enjoy crowd interaction videos. So I'm interacting with the crowd more during my shows that I tape than ever before because, you know what, let's make a fun moment. If I'm working on a bit, I'll try to do that at a time where I'm not interacting with the crowd. <laughs> you know. Now, do you remember the leapfrog from MC opener to middle to headliner where suddenly you needed 20 more minutes you start out with the five minutes and then the next thing you know if you're going to go somewhere and make money as a middle you got to have more time and then if you're going to headline yeah. you got to have more time were you great at writing and making that change or because of a combination of talents it would seem like a song could buy you two or three minutes if you played a whole I song. I didn't play the guitar till I was headlining, which ah, was okay. unfortunate. Yeah, it came in later. So when I was trying to make the jump from opener, which was like, I had a nice, I think probably solid 10. And then someone offered me a gig in like Clovis, New Mexico, like to do 20, 25 minutes as a feature. And they're like, do you have the time? I'm like, absolutely. <sighs> well, I did the time. I got paid. I think it was a like stretching jokes, tagging jokes, like taking one joke that was originally a minute 30 and try to take it and turn it into three and then some crowd work that didn't work very well and so lying about how much time i had to get into places and then figuring out if i could if i belonged everybody did it yeah. what you have to do is stay upright that's all you have to do it's yeah. like being a sparring partner to a champion boxer you stay in the ring they're gonna pay you yep. if you drop yep. or you walk off or you get mad then you lose the next opportunity because they don't know your audience does not know they don't know what you're going up with and you sometimes you don't know i mean i do now but but at the time i didn't i'd be like oh shit, I, there's no way i'm gonna stretch this to 30 minutes and then the light comes i'm like i haven't even hit my closer yet holy shit! not only did i have the time we milked some jokes we had some fun up here like okay okay this is doable they never unless you tell them young people starting out they're like oh you got any advice i'm like never complain about the lights being bright learn how to hold a microphone all the fundamentals get those out of the way first because your audience just assumes you know what you're doing so don't give them any reason to doubt you i believe they want you to succeed yes like people go oh i'd be afraid if what are people going to think of me well don't get up there then the audience sees you walk out to the microphone and they go i want to like this person they uh, they do want to like you and if you give them reasons not to if you can tell the bus driver's panicky you're like we got to get off this bus like this person <laughs> is not going to get us to the destination you referred to it earlier in the in the hosting which is when you take some command not even you know you don't have to have a personality like that but when you take control and you look like you know what's going on people go all right let's follow this person 
And if you yeah. if you get like wiggy, if you go, hey, I'm not feeling so great. I didn't get my full nap today. They'll take you down. Yeah. It's mutiny at that point. I've read in a Reader's Digest article like 10 years ago, maybe 15, what laughter does to your brain and why stand-up comedy affects different parts of your brain. There's a dopamine release. And I think they broke it down into which part of the joke gets you and why, like, you know, because there's a setup and then the punch is a surprise to you because your brain was going somewhere else and it tricks you. And that trick, which causes you to laugh, releases dopamine, which made me think, oh, dopamine's a drug. People are happy when they get their drug. That also explains why when a comic's not doing well, the audience just doesn't go, oh, well, we'll wait for the next one. They get angry. It's because you're, you're withholding their dopamine. So when comics are on a roll, it's like, yeah, we're giving you a shit ton of cocaine. And when we start bombing, we've just cut off your supply. And so it is kind of a edge of a cliff job where you have got to keep these people supplied in their brain cocaine. Yeah, that's funny. <laughs> supplied in their brain cocaine. <laughs> I like that. There's a song that's already making brain it. Brain cocaine. <laughs> well, I find that a recent joke that I've been doing which has the twist, the flip twist, is about me having a thing for a married woman. And I did everything I could to get her to sleep with me, and no, no, no. And then eventually one day, she divorced me. I heard you do this joke, yes. This I did good. this joke, but what, what I'm bringing it up as an example is the audience hates me when I say the setup. They're like, this loudmouth cad, what, what is he doing? And when the twist happens, there's this pitiful, oh, this poor guy, right, moment. And that moment is definitely tied to the laughter. The riddle tricked them, and it's all okay from there. But you have to sometimes be willing to go on that edge to take them somewhere to make the quick right turn. It right. wasn't a lie. I, I was interested in a married woman, but they can only think of it as one way. Sure. It helps that you look like you. They can start seeing you as a character of like this mother, this, of course, of course, yeah. of course you'd like a married woman. Right. Ah, I bet you're a degenerate gambler too. And then you flip it on, they're like, right. oh, well, now I'm a dick, you know? <laughs> right, right. It's a way of creating some conflict in their brain. I'm not controversial, but I do think it's interesting when they get their dander up and then when they're like, okay, prove it to me. And then when you lasso them and bring them in, they're like, ah, you got me. Yeah. There should be moments of, I mean, not extreme discomfort. I can't make them that uncomfortable. I just can't do it. I've seen other comics that can. They can take people and make them extremely uncomfortable and then break them back and like pull out of those holes. And that's that's a whole different kind of comedy, which I appreciate that it's an art form, but it's like, I, I can't take them that far. Well, I don't even want to go that far. <laughs> but, you know, I saw a Dave Chappelle special. I watched him do something on a special where the way the stage was designed, there was a main stage and then there was a walkway, a thrust that came down that he would come down. And he would get in their faces and get them worked up. And then he would make his way back to the stage and create some explanation, some comic twist. And it was almost like big game fishing. He would reel them in and then get them tight and then he'd let them out a little bit. Wow, I, you yeah. know what's funny? One time in opening for Jerry Seinfeld years ago, when he was still at clubs, I was not feeling great and I had already opened and I was in the sound booth and I kind of was laying on the floor where I couldn't see him, but I could see the LED readout on the meter and it was like, ba, 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 ha, 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 ha. He would get to this point where, and the doorknob is thinking something, the meter would peak at a certain time and I was like, 
there's a pattern to this guy. This is a musical rhythm. He's telling them when the joke is coming, and then he's delivering that moment. And and it was really an interesting study to see the consistency of it, I guess. Oh, I would be fascinated by the math on that, but I don't do math. But it would be interesting to see the, the pattern, the patterns of that, how many laughs per minute and how consistent it is, just from a geeky point of view, yeah. Well, I think that in the early days of doing The Tonight Show, there was a certain rumor about how many laughs you need per minute and what has to happen every 15 or 20 seconds. And I thought, I, I don't have time to watch the clock. I just need to get in and get out, you know, right. destroy however I can. Because I started with the tricks, I kind of had to learn to write jokes that were real punchline jokes. Mine were personality jokes and they were interaction jokes. And I would bet $1 I could cut their tie up and restore it to the same one. And then I'd cut the tie off and give them a buck and not restore it. I go, I lose. Here's your dollar, which was horrible. It was a jerky thing to do. I did it to Warren Buffett at a corporate event. They're like, did you cut his hot tie? I go, yeah. And afterwards, he said, you know what? I'll invest this dollar. I can buy all the ties I want. He got the last laugh in front yeah, of everybody yeah. because he knew his brand. Are you writing something else, dabble in screenplay or sitcom or sketch or any of that kind of thing? Right now, I'm not writing anything currently. Right now, I'm writing for a stage. I'm writing for my podcast. I write Mad Libs for my podcast on a semi-weekly basis and also in, in music. Yeah. So those are the, the three things I'm writing currently. But yeah, no, no, I'm not writing any, uh, any scripts right now. Well, I like that you write the Mad Libs yourself, though, because that's a great model for humor. Oh, but yeah, oftentimes yeah, the fun. stories are a little silly. But they're real hit or miss because I started doing this because my friends take a boat trip to Catalina every Labor Day. And we've been doing it for, I mean, 20 years. And I'd get real drunk and we'd play Mad Libs. And then I got sober and I'm like, we're going to play Mad Libs, you know. And, but we always had such a good time with it that when I did start doing podcasts and stuff during pandemic, it was something I've always had in my, my live streaming shows. And I just think they're so fun to do with anybody but especially if i write them specifically around a topic they can hear the mad lib stuff on your podcast which is kristen knows blank mm -hmm. have you had a favorite guest or two that you were so excited that they would be on oh my gosh so i had jody sweeten on she was stephanie tanner from full house and she was so fun to talk to because i didn't realize how much she liked murder until she came on the podcast she's darker <laughs> than i thought so she was real fun and uh, i've got lots of good guests on there there's there's so many funny ones. rachel scanlon was really funny but Brad Garrett's joining me on my next podcast. And I, I haven't interviewed him yet. It's coming this Friday as well, the interview. It'll be, be posted later in the month. But really excited to play Mad Lib with Brad Garrett because uh, I don't. I just don't know how it's going to go. Well, that's what makes him Brad Garrett. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It'll be fun. It's going gonna, it's gonna to be a show. I'm just going to, like you said, I'm just going to stay upright and yeah. watch the podcast happen. So the podcast Kristen Knows Blank you then ask the guest what the blank is? Before the show, I ask him a few things like, what are something you're passionate about, guilty pleasures? Because we talk about almost everything but stand-up. Because I oh, like good. the green room feel of, in a green room, we're going to talk about, like, what are we into right now? You know, either you're into golf or you're into a TV show or whatever it is. And we all kind of go around the room and uh, geek out together. And so it's kind of like my geeky podcast where I talk about the things that they're super into right now or know a lot about. We had great time in the Green Room Comedy Magic Club. And it's so funny, the way they do that anniversary is that there are 20 comics in a night doing five minutes. And so it's almost like the show is in the green room and then you have to interrupt yourself to do a five minute sales pitch to the audience and come Basically, back. Yeah, the magic of the Comedy Magic Club happens in the green room because there's some really unique pairings in there. You were awesome. And I saw you do a great promo for their birthday, which of course you 
strum the guitar and sing to them. But I think you just, you know your comic instrument and your musical instrument so well. And I would encourage the audience to follow you on at the Kristen Key. That's two eyes in Kristen on your social media and Instagram. You're hilarious and so much fun to watch. So don't ever grow up as that eager puppy. Just ah. keep that energy. We don't want to see you in a kennel. <laughs> At this point, I may have three legs, but I'm going to still keep hopping. <laughs> well, I appreciate you investing the time and sharing some of the insights. I think people who don't do stand up don't know what that routine is for us, that travel routine and all of so many of the things that you shared. We speak each other's language. We live these lives that are normal to us, but maybe abnormal to other people. Yeah, like rookie cops talking about the trouble they got into. I was thinking about the Godfather. I said, Michael, this is the business we've chosen. Like, okay, this is the business we've chosen. Okay, we sleep in a lot of weird beds. Yeah. <laughs> well, thanks a whole bunch. I look forward to listening to your podcast as well. Uh, thanks for having me on. This has been super fun. So I think it'd be fun to play us off with Kristen's brawny paper towel song that he, she was talking about, if I can coerce her into picking up that guitar in her studio there. What, me? Pick up the guitar? I would never. Well, the brawny man was looking for love. Well, the brawny man was looking for love, soft, strong, and dependable to have and hold. But when it came to men, this paper towel man just wasn't on a roll. A bounty of booty had come and gone, but his housework had been more important. And when he was willing to let his heart spill, none of them had been super absorbent. Well, he hated the idea of dating online, but he had to try once more. His profile picture was his spotless kitchen with his naked butt print on the floor. He said, I'm a neat freak in the sheets. My name is Bronnie and I keep my house tidy. I wear a lot of flannel, I'm a lot of man to handle, and the smell of bleach excites me. And I'm looking for a man whose hands fit in my rubber gloves, who cleans like a French maid, but tougher. My heart will skip a beat when he sweeps me off my feet. I need a quicker, bigger upper. Well, the Next day he got a message saying, oh, I think that we should meet. I like to stay in and Swiffer and order in dinner. Here's a little bit about me. I wear plain white t-shirts. My head is clean shaved and my kitchen floor is pristine. And your picture was hot, but you missed a spot. My name's Mr. Clean, Mr. Clean. <laughs> okay, that is awesome. I love it. <laughs> Thanks for listening. Take a moment to subscribe and we will hold your seat for more creative conversation and a weekly spark of inspiration. Our show is produced by Sweetwood Creative in Austin, Texas with sound editing under the steady hand of Tucker Hazel. Our original music theme was written and sung by Maya Sharp. With additional production support and sanity provided by Delilah Lovejoy, Tony Deo, and Diane Johansson. Please feel free to share your input or dash off a review on social media to help grow our creative community. You can find us on Instagram at Pat Hazel with two L's or visit our website at creativityincaptivity.fun. You heard that right. It's dot fun as in cross your T's and dot your fun. Ciao for now. Staring at an empty page, stepping on a ghostlit stage.